Welcome to Open to Hope Radio with your host, mother-daughter team, Dr. Gloria and Dr. Heidi Horsley. This show is brought to you by the Open to Hope Foundation with the mission of helping people find hope after loss. This show has been edited for your convenience. Now, Open to Hope Radio. Our guest today is Ann Hood, and our topic is Death of a Daughter and Lies About Grief. Two years after losing her daughter Grace to a potent strain of strep, years in which novelist Ann Hood found herself unable to read, to write, to focus on anything at all, she received a call for submissions from a literary, literary magazine on the theme of lying. That night, she sat down and composed an essay on lies about grief. That essay revived her ability to write and laid the foundation for The Knitting Circle, Hood's autobiographical novel about a mother coping with the loss of her only child. Welcome to the show, Anne. Hi, thank you, Heidi. Nice to talk to you again. It's great to have you on the show, Anne. Well, I didn't, didn't know about the loss of Skip, so you, you have had quite a journey, haven't you? Uh, I have, yeah. He was my only sibling. Um, I was 25 when he died, and he was 30. And he died in a household accident, a real, you know, just one of those freak accidents that when you hear about them, you shudder, and then, of course, it happens to you, and uh, you realize how many other people experience that sudden traumatic loss for which there is really no explanation and uh, no uh, difficult to understand. Now, yeah, you know, I've got to say, Anne, when, I, when I, I knew that you had lost Skip, and then when I found out that you had also lost your daughter, Grace, I thought, wait a minute, this isn't allowed to happen. Yeah, if we I have a sibling loss, we are not allowed to also lose a child. Yes, I, it's interesting. I have a friend, a little bit different, um, but when she was in high school, her father was murdered, and then her child got very ill, and she said one of the things she kind of was yelling in her head was, no, no, I got my share. Exactly. I don't get this too. Right. Yeah. Now, when did Grace die? Did she die before or after Skip? Um, my brother died in 1982. Uh, Grace died in 2002, so 20 years later. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now she, when she was five years old, and and as Heidi said, she died from a virulent form of strep. Uh, you know, it's one of those things that when someone asks what happened, and I tell them that, I always get strep. No, that can't happen. You know, it's um, but it's really not that uncommon. Yeah. Well, um, she probably went very quickly, right? You know, she did. It was such a strange, as I'm sure everyone with their grief story goes over and over the details and says this part was strange or, you know, the, the small details, the weather, the sounds, they get kind of frozen, you know, in your mind as you replay the scenes. But uh, she basically got a fever uh, that was very high. And when I called the doctor, the doctor said instead of taking her into the office, said take her to the emergency room. And later I asked the doctor why she had said that, and she said, I don't know, there was something in your voice. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I took her to the emergency room where they were pretty nonchalant. You know, a kid with a high fever, as you know, young children get high fevers all the time. But um, they couldn't figure out the source of her fever, and ultimately she ended up in the ICU, and they worked very hard to save her. So she was there 36 hours. If, if we had not taken her the emergency room, she would have died within a couple of hours, and we would have been, in a way, uh, we were still in shock, obviously, but we would not have had any idea of what was going on. Wow. Yeah, that's an incredible experience. We have somebody in my Compassionate Friends uh, group that 
uh, Kim that practically the same the same kind of thing happened to her. A terrible thing. Well, talk scary. Yeah, very scary. Uh, talk to us about your book and how how did you? Um, well, we heard that you started writing again. Yeah. Um, because you received a. Um, you, you've always been a writer. Yes, um, I had my first book, Somewhere Off the Coast of Maine, was published in 1987 when I was 12. No. <laughs> it was published in 1987, and um, prior to that, pub- that book's publication, I'd been working as a flight attendant for the long gone now TWA for eight years. And so I kind of eased from that job into being a writer. It's, it's not the usual transition you hear about in writers' lives. Uh, but by the time... I had Grace, and I have an older son, Sam. Uh, you know, I'd been working as a writer for, you know, 10 or 15 years at that point, and uh, exclusively as a writer. Um, and you graduated from NYU, right? I got my master's from NYU, but, you know, not in creative writing. I actually got it in American literature. Mm-hmm. I was too afraid to apply to the writing program. <laughs> I didn't want to be rejected. <laughs> So I went to NYU for graduate school and kind of through the back door started taking writing workshops there. And so um, you actually started to knit after uh, your daughter died? Yeah, it's so interesting because although it's true, um, Heidi's exactly right, that that essay, which came um, through a, a request that an editor at the literary journal Tin House had sent to many writers, although that's true that that was the first thing that got me writing, I really believe that it was knitting that not only healed me and helped me through grief, but also ultimately got me writing again. Uh, for six months after Grace died, and this always sounds like hyperbole, but I swear it's exactly true, I could not read or write. I think the combination of the shock of, of her death and just the hard work of grieving, which makes it very difficult, as we know, to concentrate on very basic things, mm-hmm. kept me from not only writing, but from reading, and, and those have been the two things that I had always turned to for comfort. After this died, I my writing took off in earnest. I mean, that really is what pushed me into writing much more seriously, and reading was something I did not only out of boredom on those long international flights to work, but also as a way to help me understand the world. And so the fact that I couldn't read or write for six months after Grace died really seems to me like the ultimate betrayal. And, and I have had so many people in the Compassionate Friends group I was in and just friends I've met along this journey. Well, Anne, um, I wanted to get to the title of our show a little bit. Yes. Ask you to tell me about what are some of the lies about grief. You know, I, I feel so guilty because I fear that before I lost Grace, I might have actually offered the same kind of false uh, comfort to people. But, you know, it's the things that... For example, you're told, just let each season go by, and then you'll feel better once you've experienced each season, or after the first anniversary, or also things that are said like, um, she's in a better place, we're only given what we can handle. You know, they're platitudes. And at at least she didn't suffer. At least she didn't suffer. I mean, I even got, if you can believe it, at least you have another child. I was just, that was my next one. Yeah, at least you have another child. As mm-hmm. if you just can sort of, you know, plug them in, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> just to uh, recover. Um, and they are things that I think have been said so often that it's what people offering comfort often turn to. But they really don't ring true. 
And in, I fact, in fact, you actually, I, I remember wondering, um, you're not given more than you can bear. I mean, yes. I, I can't bear this. I, I, what's going to happen? I mean, I'm going That's crazy. Right. I'm going to exactly. lose my mind. Yeah, you say, actually, I've been given something that I don't think I can bear. <laughs> Just for your information. <laughs> Right? Yeah, for sure. And and that things will get better. Um, the second year, you're like wondering, uh, is this it? Yes. Yes. Yeah, sometimes the second year can be even harder because you're like, this is permanent. This yeah. Is, this is not going to change. Start thinking in. And I think with sudden uh, death, like graces, the first year, you're basically in shock. And as that starts, to, you know, you start recovering from that, the reality hits you. So the second year is often much more difficult. Yeah, Absolutely. So um, what did you say in your article about, I was wondering, uh, the thought of lies about grief. What did what do we do with those? Did you comment on that? You know, the way I wrote the essay was actually, um, I would write one of the things people tell, and then it was like an, a monologue I had with myself instead of actually responding to them about my response to that. Mm-hmm. You know, so somebody would say, for example, I have the essay right here, so I thought maybe I could... Um, just give you, I, I have a nonfiction book coming out called Comfort, and it's ah. about these very things, and it's coming out in um, May. But one of them is Time Heals. Uh-huh. She's in a better place. How about She's Still With You? Mm-hmm. Um, there's a heaven, and you will see her again. Um, and I, I want her now. <laughs> exactly. Well, you know, my daughter was five, and when people would say she's in a better place, I used to think, how can a five-year-old be in a better place not with her mother? Right. You know? Um, so time heals. Once you've lived through all the first, it will get better. But then I talked about the first when they weren't better, the first summer at the beach without her sand castles, the first day of school when she would have put on her purple leopard backpack mm. um, and walked into first grade, something she never got to do her sixth birthday with her costume party that she always had, the first Halloween without her dressing as something with wings, an angel, a fairy, a ladybug. So I, I name all of the firsts that went by that made it harder, not easier. Now, I recognize a few of those comments from your book, too, where you yes. put those in with some of your characters. Absolutely, yes. And now, could you tell us about how you got in? Tell us about knitting, because yeah. Heidi and I—that's Heidi and I have talked to people, you know, about things that have helped them. But knit, this is a first for knitting, isn't it? Yeah, Heidi? because I didn't realize I was talking to my mom about this that knitting is kind of a form of meditation, and you really can take a break from your grief through knitting. I didn't realize that until I read your book. You know, it is absolutely true. And I have sat down with grieving moms and taught them to knit. And although, you know, if you are not a knitter or someone who's very good with crafts, which I actually am not, it feels so awkward and you're actually tense and I could read their minds thinking, she's crazy, this isn't helping me. And then I get letters or emails as time goes on thanking me because it actually becomes a refuge. It's one of those things that you are both concentrating and not concentrating at the same time. Um, They have likened it to things like gardening or swimming, where there's a repetitive action that almost puts you into like a meditative state. Now, I do golf. And does that work for you? I would guess that's the same. It's the same as a single point focus kind of thing. Where, you know, you have to, I think even skiing, any any kind of activity where you, you have to concentrate that yeah. doesn't require thinking, in, you know, in the same kinds of ways. That's right. You have to get out of your head because it is so crowded by your grief. I think running, even walking, any kind of movement can be... Uh, so sometimes with walking, I do start to obsess while I'm walking. Yeah, your <laughs> mind can wander, can't it? I remember, yes. and I'm a big, I'm a huge walker. 
but I remember that I actually had to wear like an iPod when I, was I gonna, walked yeah. mm-hmm. because my mind would get, I would get go to that place again that I was trying to retreat from, you know, and, that, and that really noisy grief spot that we exactly, can get to. Exactly, and Anne, I know that this book is a fiction, but it's based loosely on your life. Is that yes. correct? Yes. Why did that. you choose to do it that way rather than write a book about your life? You know, I don't think it was a choice as much as a necessity because when I started writing the book, which was a year and a half after Grace died, um, I think it would be it would have been too difficult for me to go into my little office for six hours a day and revisit my own grief and my own story. By making it fiction, I could step back from those things. I, I, I hope that makes sense. I could look at it through a different lens. You could also have some of your characters support you. Yeah, I could give them the things I longed for, like the perfect knitting circle with women who could listen to me endlessly and help me. <laughs> you know, we all need that with grief, and although we find it in little pockets, I wanted to give my character a steady community of help and friendship. Well, what's interesting about the fact that it's a fiction is many of my friends who have never had a loss have read it because yeah. it's a fiction, but if it was based on your life, a lot of my friends probably wouldn't have read it unless they had a loss and they wanted to identify in some way. That's a good point. You know, we all like a good story. Yeah. And we'll turn to those, and that to many of us means a novel, something fictitious. And in this story, you talk a lot about the sit and knit, which is where everybody goes to knit. Was yes. that really where you went? No, not at all. Okay. Everything is actually, <laughs> everything is made up. And, you know, I think many fiction writers would agree that you ask the question, what if? And that yeah. separates you from the story. And then you can let your imagination take over. Okay. What I wanted to be real was the emotional truth of loss. And although this sounds silly, I really sort of pictured loss like a disco ball. Remember those silver balls yeah. that reflected and refracted light? Um, because I think grief is like that. It spins around and covers everything. Sometimes it's dazzling. Sometimes just small pieces of it you know, hit you. Sometimes you feel like you're totally in the darkness, and there are many sides to grief. And so by creating this knitting circle, I let each woman kind of represent a different piece of it. Well, and I loved the knitting circle, and I was hoping you were going to say that, that it was real because I love Big Alice, and I love the support of the sit and knit and having everybody there together with the common theme of knitting. You know, one of my saddest emails on, when I get emails about the book is that I have to tell people they actually can't go there. They <laughs> <laughs> want to know where the circle is. Yeah, where is it? I'll drive three hours, they'll say. I'm like, it's in my mind. But, you know, they could actually read this and start their own circle. Yes, they could, Mom. Because, uh, yeah, you do sit around and talk. I've knit before at stores, basically, you know, where they yeah. have little knitting knitting groups. And it, you can go to your local store, by the way, for people who are listening, if you think knitting would be an activity that you might want to do with other people. Look around at your yarn stores in your neighborhood, and you'll Absolutely. find that they have knitting groups. Well, and Absolutely. I like when you were they were knitting in your book, the circle of people knitting. They moved in and out of their stories. They could yeah. tell their stories, and they could they could express their emotions. But if it got too intense, they just you know retreated back into the knitting and talked about the next stitch. Or that's you could right. yeah, or you could say is this a, yeah is this a knit or a pearl? Right, that's <laughs> right. <laughs> The best way out of a sticky conversation in a knitting circle. My mom, um, you know, who's in her late 70s um, and sort of shied away from a lot of the things that we know can help you with the loss of a uh, loss of a child and the loss of a sibling, like therapy, like knitting, like talking to friends, joining groups, you know, that help you to deal with these things. She didn't do any of it. And so I'm afraid that 
her grief uh, has been buried for a long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, she said to me, she was in the hospital when Grace died, and oh she came to me when she heard what had happened. She ran through into the ICU and just held me and said, if there was a pain I could keep from you, it would be this one. Uh-huh. Wow. Because she knew. And absolutely, that's pretty intense. Yeah. Very touching. Yeah. Well, my mother just... Uh, uh, when Scott died, she she couldn't deal with it. You know, it was mainly uh, kind of through denial, saying, yeah. you know, I have to think of him and being in heaven. You know. Oh yeah. So, but. Um, and you know, they're also dealing with their own, their own loss because it's their grandchildren that have died, and that's very tough. We've had a lot of grandparents on that say that's very tough because we should be the next ones. The grandparents should go next. Yeah, not you know, their grandchildren. I, I think it's something that isn't really talked about that much. I'm so glad you brought that up, Heidi. My mom had an amazing relationship with Grace, and she does with my son, Sam. They used to sleep at her house every Saturday night. They had their own rituals, their own routines, and uh, she lost it all, too. And, of course, um, they are expected to be the comforter. Mm-hmm. Right, and then they also have to see their children suffer. Exactly, that's not easy. No. Not only their children, but their uh, you know they lose their grandchildren and they have to watch it. And and also, as with siblings, you two mm-hmm. know better than I. But I think that they also are disenfranchised and oh. don't feel like they have the right to mourn. Mm-hmm. I certainly feel that because I thought my role was to help my parents, and you know that actually has been so helpful with me with my relationship with my son Sam. Mm-hmm. He had just turned nine when Grace died, and I promised myself that I would not he would not lose us as well. Mm-hmm. It was one of the hardest promises to keep, but to me it was the most important. And there were days when, you know, you don't even think you can put your pants on. But you know that you have that child who's still a child and needs to get his homework done and needs his mom to bring, you know, it's our day to do the snack at school or whatever. And that really helped me. And, and to listen to him, to still read him a story at night, uh, it was, as I said, it was one of some of the hardest things I had to do. But I think it was really important that he felt his parents we're not also gone. You know, that's an important point because Heidi and I get in a little uh, hassle sometimes. We uh, will give a presentation together, and one of the things that we say that's important for surviving children is to let them know that nothing will happen to you. And we always get people saying, but something could happen. Yeah. You know, and, and we talk to professionals, and the professionals say, but we can't tell parents to say that. And Heidi uh, has, I think, a good response to it. Write a letter if you if you can't tell them that, saying, I'm sorry, I, you know, uh, well, Heidi, what does the letter say? You well, I think one of the things we can do is just reassure our kids that we're doing everything in our power to stay healthy. We're wearing safety belts. It's highly unlikely that anything would ever happen again. We're very healthy, et cetera. And then, and God forbid anything did, these are the people that love you. You have a big family. You have many relatives. You have yes. aunts and uncles. There's other people in your lives, you'll never be alone. There's other people that you can that's the le- But that's the letter that's- that you have for them. You tell them that nothing's going to happen to you. Yes, right. That's a, that's a very good idea, very good advice. And, you know, um, interestingly, one of my midwives who had been with me for both of my children's births, and, you know, pregnancies and births, mm-hmm. she came to me um, in the weeks after Grace died, and she told me, she's an older woman, and she told me that when she was three, her five-year-old sister died. And that what her mother did at that time, and she urged me to do this, and I I did it, was to sit down and describe the world that was we were living in at that time. What music were we listening to? What were our routines? What did I observe about Sam and Grace at that time? Mm. 
you know, and I wrote this letter that I will give Sam maybe, you know, as an adult, maybe when he gets married or graduates from college at an older point in his life that says, here is how we were before. I remember this, and it needs to be remembered. I love that because you're, and, and here's the way you interacted with your sister, and here's That's the things right. you did together. Yeah, I because, I mean, fabulous. at eight, eight or nine years old, we think that they're pretty well formed and will remember things, but we know many things, you know, we lose a lot of memories. Mm-hmm. And I captured everything, what we used to do in the afternoon after school. Um, and she said that her mother writing that letter and giving it to her about she and her sister not only validated some of her very vague memories, but also saw the, the life she had been living when it was, you know, ruptured. Mm-hmm. And that really helped her to go forward. That's interesting. Of course, in this day and age, you can do a, a videotape of it or whatever if you're not one to want to sit down and write. That's right. Um, it must have been quite uh, heart-wrenching for you to do that, maybe healing but also heart-wrenching. It was so heart-wrenching that I will tell you that that is sitting in an envelope in a safe place in my office, and I have never opened that envelope. Well, I think you revisited everything that you lost also in writing yeah, that. That's right, exactly. You know, even what book we were in the middle of reading. You know, I used to read them a chapter book, mm-hmm. and even where we were in that book, which, you know, we never finished. And, and you know, younger siblings absolutely adore their older siblings. I'm sure Grace absolutely adored Sam. Oh, she did. And we have so mm-hmm. many pictures of them. They used to sleep together every night. They never slept oh. in their own rooms. Oh, that is and so we have pictures of them holding hands in their sleep. And, and again, it just reinforces his loss was so huge mm-hmm. that I really had to make my priority having him stay healthy. And it's just interesting because you lost your only sibling and he lost his only sibling. That's right. And uh, so on such a deep level, you really get what he's going through in his life, what he will be going through as far as being now the only child. Well, yes, although that's true, um, two years ago, we, I always say we, my husband and Sam and I adopted a baby from China. Oh, you're kidding. I did as well two years ago. We, we, you did? How funny, yes. You're kidding. (laughs) No. (laughs) Which province? Maybe we were over there at the same time, Aunt Jinxi. Oh, our our baby was from uh, Hunan. Wow, that's very ironic. You know, it's something we came to as a family. Mm-hmm. Um, my husband and I sort of were on the same thought, you know, pa- pattern and articulated it the same night. And when we told Sam what we were thinking of, he said, finally, you came up with that idea. I love it. And can I tell you I'm getting chills because I had one son. I have one son, and I could not conceive. I had many miscarriages and infertility. Yeah. And there was no way I was going to not allow him to have the wonderful experience of a sibling. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons we decided to adopt from China. Yeah, we well, could experience sibling, a sibling. Well, we know siblings are a gift, and we mm-hmm. know how precious they are because we've lost our siblings. Absolutely. And I, I didn't want to deny Sam the privilege of that gift. I felt the exact same way. Wow, that's amazing, you two. Well, listen, I want to ask a question that's kind of a one-off question, but okay. do you think men can knit for after grief? <laughs> and can they knit? <laughs> they knit my, husband. <laughs> my husband is not a knitter, but I also have a husband who can't sit still, you know, and I think if knitting would do wonders for him <laughs> for relaxation. It's funny, I was just a, a speaker, a guest at a book club this past weekend in North Carolina. One of the members is a man, and I taught him to knit. And the next day at the brunch, while the women were all chattering away, what do you think that man was sitting there doing? Knitting. He couldn't yeah. stop. <laughs> he couldn't stop. 
And then I came home, and I had a message on my cell phone from him with a knitting question. He said, I have a knitting emergency. I'm sorry to bother you. So this guy is an addict now. You know, it's all my fault. I think anyone can do it. I, I was at a knitting store in New York City in January. I was the only woman sitting there knitting. Wow. With all men. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. We, we had a friend who was actually president of Kodak that used to hook those little, funny little rugs of children's rugs, you know? Mm-hmm. Oh, sure. Yeah. With koala bears on them and that kind of thing. Yeah, well, you know, it, it, it makes sense because men like doing things with their hands. They like being active, and it gives them right. an activity. That's right. You can do you can knit while you're doing something else. For all the multitasking males out there, mm-hmm. you know, it might be just the thing. Very and I know with your husband, Ann, he, he renovated the house, right? Oh, you know what he did? Uh, you're close. He um, bricked and cobblestoned our entire yard and front walk. Wow. Yeah, and something he did not know how to do. The man is not a mason or, you know, anything like that. Um, he... It, it, it's funny how life gives us these metaphors. Right after Grace died, the tree in front of our house, the roots um, ruined our sidewalk. Like they came up through the sidewalk, and the tree had to be taken down. And the city, I live in Providence, the city was just going to sort of asphalt the sidewalk, and my husband thought that wasn't very attractive. We live in a historic neighborhood. So he decided to brick it, but not just to brick it, but in a herringbone pattern. Wow, he taught himself pretty. by looking online and buying a book at, you know, Home Depot or someplace. And once he started that, he was out there every weekend for the next two years while I was learning to knit and sitting and knitting, he was doing our whole driveway and then our backyard. And that's the way he healed. Yes. And, you know, often um, studies show that men prefer to do something that physically exhausts them. So at night when they hit that pillow, they're out. They're so tired they can't think. You know, one of the things that comes up for me about both the knitting and the uh, work that your husband did is yeah. they're both creative, and you're creating something. Bringing something new into the world seems to be a longing that we have after this loss. We've had such a huge loss. Absolutely. I think that's true, and it's almost like um, you're doing something in in the memory of your child. Mm-hmm. I know that sounds perhaps like it doesn't line up, but my husband put in all these little secret things mm-hmm. that were tributes to Grace. Well, in, in, with, in that vein, you also in the book talk about how, or maybe it was when I saw you, as you're knitting, you can knit things of love, little hearts or stitches of love, and as a tribute to your daughter. Yeah, and someone had told me that after their boyfriend had died, their college boyfriend, while they were dating, she started to knit, and she said she knit I love you into every stitch. Mm-hmm. And that was that idea really struck me, and that's what I try to do as I'm knitting, but set, you're sending out a message in a way. I, I don't want to seem too out there, but, you know, you're mm-hmm. knitting with love and right. with love towards your daughter who you can't hold and can't tell that to. Mm-hmm. Now, I would say for our audience out there, if you're listening, you um, heard that um, – Anne's husband did this about a year out, and Anne, what were you, six months out or more six when months you started out. knitting? Yeah. Because yeah. uh, we don't expect you to be sitting down knitting or going to a knitting store or whatever um, right after you have a child. I, you know, uh, the idea of creating and all that probably comes a little later. We want you to start out by taking care of yourself, wouldn't you, say, Anne? Oh, absolutely. In fact, I remember someone with very good intentions offering to teach me to quilt because I wanted to save Grace's clothes, and she thought that was a good way. And I thought, 
in some vague way, that did sound like a good idea, but she wanted to teach me, like, right then, which was maybe six weeks after Grace died, when I still couldn't, you know, match my clothes or boil water to cook pasta or do anything. And also, I don't know, at, at that point, if you were ready to take her clothes and actually um, cut them apart and oh, make quilts out of them. Of course not. And, mm-hmm. and I think that space, we want, on the one hand, I think we want to help ourselves desperately. On the other hand, it's not time yet. And I wanted to... Um, ask you uh, bef- uh, if you had any special things that you wanted to talk about before we end the show. Well, you know, I thought we've been talking a lot about knitting and it's one way to to find comfort and solace. Um, I thought I would read, it's so short, but it's the prologue of the knitting circle. Okay. And I think it says a lot about what we are trying to express. Daughter, I have a story to tell you. I have wanted to tell it to you for a very long time. But unlike Babar or Eloise or any of the other stories that you loved to hear, this one is not funny. This one is not clever. It is simply true. It is my story, yet I do not have the words to tell it. Instead, I pick up my needles and I knit. Every stitch is a letter. A rose spells out, I love you. I knit I love you into everything I make. Like a prayer or a wish, I send it out to you hoping you can hear me. Hoping, daughter, that the story I am knitting reaches you somehow. Hoping that my love reaches you somehow. Mm, that's beautiful. It really is wonderful. And you can get um, Anne's book through uh, Amazon. Do you have it also on your website? Absolutely, yes, I do. And my website is www.annhood.us. Great. And it's just out in paperback. Oh, great. Wonderful. It's a wonderful book, and I would highly recommend it. Really great stories. It would be a great gift to give people. And also, you were talking about um, going to a book group. It would be a wonderful book for a book group to read. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a reading guide available on the website. Oh, that's great. And we need to talk a little bit about some of the other things you've written, because Heidi was talking about, um, what's the name of the article, Heidi? The Man I Can Never Forget. And it was in O Magazine, September Mm -hmm. of 2000, right? Yes. Yeah. Thank you, Heidi, for remembering yeah. the date. Well, I pass it on all the time because it's, it's the thing I love about it. Like I said before, is it's not a long article, but it captures, in essence, everything that's important about sibling loss. Thank you so much, and you told me that when we met, and it stayed with me. So thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. So, what part of your book do you think would give a reader comfort for your writings? Well, you know, I think the knitting circle has reached. So many people with so many kinds of loss, it has really been an incredible experience this past year since it's been published to, uh, to realize how much comfort it has offered. And I think it's because it shows people in different points of the grieving process. Some are 20 years out and some are newer to it and some are about to enter it. Mm-hmm. And it shows all kinds of loss. And so many people come up to me and say, you wrote my story, and then they tell me what they're going through, and none of the characters are experiencing that. I think it, it sort of hits a universal chord for those of us um, who experience loss, and it also ultimately feels quite hopeful at the end. And I think that's really important because you asked that question. I think it's the name of your workshop, Gloria, Will I Ever Be Happy Again? Mm-hmm. And I feel like um, that's the question we all wonder after experiencing something like this. But to leave the book... Feeling hopeful, I think, is really something that people hold on to. Yeah, I love that idea that you can kind of go from one person to the other. This you don't relate to this story, or that's too painful, or you know, in the knitting circle. Yes. Oh, this little piece reminds me of me, and then then you kind of almost build your own narrative, your own story. That's right. Yeah, that's right. It's a, a wonderful way to and, do and it. And the fact that you can experience pure joy at some point again. 
You can, okay. and, and it's, it's a journey. And the first time I remember experiencing pure joy, I had a lot of guilt about it. Oh, you know, that goes a lot in hand in hand as well. Yep. And those jo- those joyful moments that come up, and and uh, along with the others. Well, and um, how is your husband doing? And and how did did he deal with it? Do you have any thoughts for men out there? Well, I'll tell you, we have a beautiful yard now. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the thing is, and I, I think it's the the best gift we can give each other. Those of us grieving, is everybody has to work through it in their own way. We can't say to them, you should redo your backyard, you should knit. We can offer ideas, we can offer suggestions that have helped us or those we know, but we shouldn't expect them to do what we do. And I think one of the wonderful things that my husband and I were able to do is to allow each other the space to grieve and heal in our own way. Mm, That's wonderful. Yeah, great way to put it. And one of the things that we talk about with Compassionate Friends is that the fact that... um, Having the death of a child or another loved one doesn't mean you're going to get divorced. No, no. It's you know that that is something that everyone kind of almost half expects. And uh, I certainly came together with more families that uh, are still together and hanging on to each other and to the memories of their children than not. Yeah, and the compassionate friends has certainly found that. Um, in a study that they did, and this is important because the um, medical community does have some kind of a myth belief out there, you know, and I've heard many people tell me that they're told that they will probably, they have a risk for divorce now. They really need to get counseling. Oh, yeah. So uh, that's a good thing to know that you and your husband and family are still strong. Oh, yeah. You know, and again, it's even not judging the things about how often we, each of us goes to the cemetery or how often each of us talks about grace. Um, we both understand that the, our loss is enormous, and uh, we we carry it with us every day, and we express it just in our own way. Mm-hmm. Um, and does your does your new daughter? What is your little girl's name now? Her name is Annabelle. Annabelle, is she asking at all about Grace's pictures? Absolutely, because you know they're everywhere. Grace right. is a part of our lives, and. Mm-hmm. Um, She'll always talk about it. The other day when we visited the cemetery, I said the other day it was at Christmas, and we put down a white rose, and then we started to drive away, and Annabelle said, no, let's wait until Grace picks it up. Oh. <laughs> and and how old is Annabelle explain. now? She's three. Three. That's mm-hmm. So you know, we're uh, having to explain a lot of things that are hard for her at her age to quite grasp, but I say they're hard for me too. <laughs> well, and I love little children because they she'll bring up Grace often. They don't have taboos against talking openly about someone that's died. We should follow their lead more. I agree completely. Absolutely. Well, let's leave our show on that note, and thank you so much for being on the show today, Anne Hood. Thanks, Anne. It's been wonderful having you. you on. You have been listening to Open to Hope Radio. You can sign up for our newsletter, Facebook, and Twitter on our homepage at opentohope.com.